Good morning. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. This morning we're going to be looking at an example of the harmony of the Gospels and also an introduction to the first letter of John. Ray spent uh, uh, last Sunday looking at an overview of John, his life, and uh, different things that he accomplished. So we're going to touch on a couple of those things that... Uh, Ray discussed, but we're also going to be looking at this aspect of the harmony of the Gospels. So the uh, qualification to this introduction to 1 John, this is topical teaching. So normally the messages in this church are expository or they're context-based teaching, which builds a foundation by exploring the topics within a particular passage of Scripture. Much teaching in the modern world is the other way around, where topics are accompanied by carefully selected verses uh, that agree with those particular topics. This is not necessarily wrong, but it's certainly more subject to human error. At other times, you'll see topical teaching is even more focused in that it's preceded by a short passage or a uh, maybe an individual verse, individual verse, excuse me, followed by a narrative, sometimes known as being short on scripture and long on application. Uh, this is even more subject to error and is similar to drawing a straight line based on a single point. Without any reference points, you can go any way you want. So you start, start here, literally, I could go here, I could go here, I could go out there, I could go in any direction I want if I'm not grounded by reference points in Scripture. In mathematics, this is known as extrapolation, uh, drawing a line or a curve out in writing and teaching it would be commanded as directing or leading the discussion. But my mentor, Charles Moore, referred to this method as riding a hobby horse. And uh, this is probably a lost term for many people. Uh, hobby horses aren't a popular toy anymore, but when I was a kid, I had a hobby horse. It's basically a stick with a horse's head on the end of it and reins. And you'd uh, ride that thing around, something very easy to ride. And the, and the reason it's called a hobby horse is there's actually an English horse that's very easy to ride. So uh, that's where they adopted this term hobby horse. But the idea is it's, a, it's something that's easy to do. It's very comfortable. <clears throat> and so um, Charles described expository teaching as a method that over time arrives at all topics and doctrines including those you'd like to avoid. And we've all been there where you're things that are making you very uncomfortable or very convicting. And when you hear those messages, be assured the person who's delivering that message is feeling those same things that you are. But Charles also stated that the expository method prevented him from focusing on favorite topics and engaging in hobby horse, which soapbox type teaching. Again, that, those things that we're comfortable with we all have particular things that we like to talk about or maybe we're very passionate about. And the problem with letting that lead you from the pulpit is you end up going maybe down the same road over and over again and you might, be, you might actually be wrong, uh, something we don't like to admit. Uh, however, this particular uh, overview or introduction is by necessity topical and it's not centered on a group of verses presented in context, so it's more prone to errors being contributed by me. So I'm gonna do my best to add scriptural reference points so we stay on a straight line, um, a true straight line. But let's please be Bereans as a group. And in Acts 17 uh, verses 10 through 11, 
we see the Bereans commanded. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scripture daily to see whether these things are so. And you've heard these verses many times before, but still that concept of the Bereans being, uh, they were diligent, they attended church, but they were diligent to look at things for themselves and confirm in the word that what I heard is true. And, uh, and despite the fact, very well-known teachers, Paul and Silas in this case, they still went and grounded themselves in God's word, and we need to do the same. So as we move into the, uh, the message, let's consider the author of 1 John. And uh, this might be very obvious based on the name, but the Holy Spirit actually wrote the entire Bible, uh, and he used men as his recording instruments. So John, the apostle, was the instrument in this case. Uh, who was John? And Ray spent some time here last week, but we're going to look at a couple aspects of that. If you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 18 through 22. We're going to look at some different places in the gospel here in this aspect of defining or finding more information about who was John. So we see that John first appears in Matthew 4.21 as a fisherman, and he's probably a young man. Um, We don't know that. Scripture doesn't tell us that. But he appears and he's mending nets, with his brother James, and they are uh, the sons of Zebedee. Um, Zebedee, we don't know anything about him. There are no details in scripture. We see his name mentioned a few times, but there's no explanation of who he was or where he came from. But let's look at this passage in Matthew 4, verses 18 through 22. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. So this is where we're introduced to, uh, to the Apostle John. And we see earlier in the passage in Matthew 4 that Jesus is by the Sea of Galilee and that he's just finished calling uh, the brothers Simon or Peter and uh, Andrew, who are also fishermen. And uh, this is a fairly short passage. It's a brief account of this calling. So I look for additional content or context in the other gospel accounts. During this process, I was led down a rabbit trail, but it's significant. And so please bear with me while we explore this together. So we're looking for additional content pertaining to John. So we're going to go to Luke chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. A little bit longer passage. Luke chapter 5. So this is going to provide some additional context for us, and it's going to fill in more of the story. Um, Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had got out of them and were washing their nets. 
And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little distance from the land. And he sat down and continued teaching the crowds from the boat. Now when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon responded and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I'll do as you say and let down the nets. And when they had done this, they caught a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to tear. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both of the boats to the point that they were sinking. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And likewise also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear, from now on you will be catching people. And when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So in Luke's account, we see that Jesus had directed Simon to go fishing, and this is actually at the wrong time of day. Simon had been out fishing that night, which is typically what they did. But uh, I don't know what time this is, if it's early morning, but it's not the right time of day to be fishing because we see the fishermen are actually washing their nets, meaning they're done. They're done working for the day, and they're getting ready for the next day's work, which is going to come later. <clears throat> so... Uh, and we also see that the subsequent miraculous catch uh, that they obtained strains the nets and the boats and involve both pairs of brothers, uh, Simon and Andrew and James and John. They were partners, we find out in this account in Luke. In Luke 5.6, it says their nets began to break. And so this puts some clarity on us why in the account of Matthew, we saw they were mending their nets. And... Uh, so they'd, uh, they'd been through a big, a big catch and they had to do repairs on their nets in the account of Matthew. And a further example of the perfect connection and reinforcement of scripture, we find in John 1 that Andrew and Peter had already met Jesus. So let's, let's go there. Let's go to John chapter 1 and hold your place in John. We're going to be looking a little further on in John later. So we see these accounts. Uh, you also see the, the Holy Spirit is writing these accounts, but you see the personality of the authors. Luke was a doctor. He was more detailed. He had a much more detailed account, the passage that we read, versus the account of Matthew, which was much more abbreviated. But again, this is that aspect of uh, connection and harmony of the Gospels. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35 Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. This is John the Baptist that's speaking. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. And they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about the tenth hour. One of the two had heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. 
He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You should be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. So in this account, we see that John the Baptist reveals Jesus to Andrew, and Andrew is actually at that time serving as a disciple of John. The other disciples not named, but we see Andrew named later on the account. So Andrew follows Jesus that day, and he arrives at his place of lodging. The 10th hour is about 4 p.m., so it's late in the afternoon, and he spends the night with Jesus. Then he brings his brother Simon to meet the Messiah. That's in John chapter 1, verse 42, who renames him Cephas or Peter. So again, we see a little different perspective here and more background as we, as we connect these accounts together, we get, a better, we get a better picture. And it actually helps us to understand why there are no questions or hesitation when Jesus asked Peter, and that was in Luke 5, 3, to move his boat offshore a short distance. And that was so Jesus could teach, teach the multitudes. I mean, Jesus is God and people are gonna do what he commands them to do, but we see there's a little bit more to the story. There's an understanding uh, they, know, they know who Jesus is. And so furthermore, Peter is also obedient when he's told to go fishing, despite not having caught anything the night before. And we see that in Luke chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. <clears throat> so those who hate God's word would point to these counts as of examples of inconsistencies in the scripture, because the stories aren't exactly the same, are they? They're, uh, they're slightly different. But the reality is that these accounts complement each other and they complete the story. Uh, the Word of God, this is an analogy, is like layers in an AutoCAD drawing. If you had an AutoCAD drawing of a building and you were uh, looking at that as you laid down each digital layer on the display, you would see things such as the structural, You'd see the electrical on top of that. You'd see the plumbing on top of that as you brought these layers in. And uh, you would see more of what the designer had intended. And the Gospels are like that. They lay on top of each other. These accounts complement each other and we get to see more of, more of what's going on, more of what God had intended. And sometimes the phrase harmony of the Gospels is used to describe the interconnection of the first four books of the New Testament but um, I'd like us to consider that that thought is really applicable to the entire Word of God because the Holy Spirit wrote the entire book, so it's all connected. That's why it's such a uh, uh, travesty to take the Bible and rip it apart and say, I have, I'm carrying a New Testament around with me. Well, you're carrying around about a third of the Bible, roughly. You look at the whole Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament are interconnected and the stories are interconnected just as the Gospels are interconnected. Another analogy would be you have four members of a choir who are singing individual different parts, but these parts blend together to create a complete melody. Uh, to continue that analogy, let's place the choir now in an orchestra. And so the individual parts being played by the musical instruments and the choir are added together by the conductor to make a complete and beautiful symphony. And that's the way the Word of God is. It's a beautiful symphony. So the intent of these analogies is not to distract us from Scripture as they pale in comparison to the Word of God. 
However, they illustrate that although different perspectives can appear to be in conflict or incomplete, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And that's a quote from Aristotle, but it's certainly applicable to the, uh, to the word of God when you bring all these parts together. When we look more deeply into scripture, we find there are no contradictions, only a lack of effort and understanding on our part. And so, as we return to the account in Matthew, it's interesting to note that Jesus calls fishermen, such as John, to be his apostles. He doesn't go to the temple or any of the rabbinical schools. Um, in our, in our uh, time, it would be colleges, for instance, would be going, I'm going to go to MIT to find the best engineer that I can. That's not what Jesus did. He doesn't go to any of those places. Personally, I find this very appealing and can identify with this process. Uh, God seeks after imperfect working men rather than the intellectual elite of that day, which were people who are rich, rich mentally. And we see that caution about rich men taught in, a, taught in a parable. And so there were men, the Pharisees, they were rich intellectually, but they were poor in their understanding of God. But we see the response of these fishermen to this calling by Jesus, and it's remarkable. Yes, they knew who Jesus was. Andrew, Andrew had been introduced to Jesus as the uh, Messiah by John the Baptist, and so they have, they have a partial understanding. They understand a few things about Jesus, but they don't grasp all of it, but they leave their families, their jobs, their possessions, and everything they know. And uh, it's truly immediate obedience without looking back. And it's, it's remarkable. And we see John faithfully follow Jesus from the shores of Galilee through Jesus' three and a half year ministry. Ray covered much of this last week, including that John was the only apostle to accompany Jesus all the way to the cross. <clears throat> and uh, we're going to go to John 19.25, and if you held your place in John, you just need to flip over a few chapters. <clears throat> John 19.25, but we see in John 18.15 that Peter and another disciple, who is John, follow Jesus after his rest, but only John continues all the way. Um, this is indirectly referred to in John 19, the passage we're going to read, but we notice that John did not announce he was the only one. Actually, he doesn't call himself out at all. So John 19, verses 25 through 27. Now beside the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. And that's the last part of that's a remarkable story as well. But I'd like to focus on is the fact that John is there. He's standing, he's standing at the foot of the cross, and he's the only one of the apostles that is. And this shows the character of John. As Ray talked about last week, there are people who like to portray John as being full of love, and he is, and but like he's... Somehow he's weak, he's a hippie, he's effeminate, or whatever, whatever it might be. But this really shows the character of John. 
being the apostle loved did not mean he was weak. There was an iron backbone in this man. And uh, we see this despite being the apostle of love. For all John knew, he's standing there at the foot of the cross. He could have been pointed out like Peter was, like there, hey, he's one of the apostles. Let's take him, let's try him, let's hang him up on another cross. John didn't know what was going to happen. I mean, we do. We have the account. But imagine the courage it took, and he's the only one who did this. You're hanging out with a group of 12 guys, and the other 11 guys all leave, and, and he's the one there. He's, he's there, and he's at the foot of the cross with Jesus, and it's remarkable. A commentary I read suggested that John was actually appointed by God the Father to comfort Jesus in his service in his service while he was on earth. And you look at that and he's referred to as the apostle whom Jesus loved. And you see that where the other places in scripture, you see John is always very close to Jesus. He's right at, right at hand, including at the, uh, the Last Supper, he's actually reclining against Jesus' head on, on Jesus' chest. And much like a baby, being comforted by a parent. I mean, he's right there. He's so full of love. And so it's an interesting thought. That's not scriptural, but it's an interesting thought that he'd been appointed for that purpose. But despite that, let's think of the courage of that young man standing at the cross. But we find him 60 years later, still following that calling by writing the powerful sermon contained within 1 John. And so let's consider... John's writings, uh, letters that are recorded in Scripture. So five books in the New Testament uh, can be attributed to the John the Apostle, the Gospel according to John, the first letter of John, the second letter of John, the third letter of John, and the Revelation to John. Some commentators get caught up in debates about whether John is the most likely candidate for being the uh, the author, and whether he's actually the author of the Gospel of John or of Revelation. To me, this seems counterproductive because John is the most likely candidate. He's named in the titles, and these differences in writing style can be attributed to the directing author, the Holy Spirit. So the idea, Ray and I were talking about this before service, the idea that people might think of, well, he's just an ignorant fisherman, we don't know that. Because he was a fisherman doesn't mean he was stupid, does it? <clears throat> he, could have been, he could have been very well educated. I'm sure we've all met plenty of people that are very, very intelligent and they, and they like working with their hands. And that's actually one of the things I like about Jesus is he went out and recruited men that were working with their hands. But because of that doesn't mean that John wasn't the author of that. And that's really counterproductive. Also, I mean, because you end up wasting time on the, well, it could have been this John or that John. Like, it doesn't matter. The Holy Spirit wrote these, wrote these accounts. So uh, tradition, and again, this is not scripture, tells us that First John was most likely written while John was in Ephesus. And Ephesus is the location of John's tomb. There's traditional historical accounts that say John spent a good part of his life in Ephesus uh, involved in the church there. And that's where this writing came from. Again, that's not in scripture. But let's uh, move forward and consider John's motive for writing this letter.
So commentators place the writing of 1 John at approximately 90 AD. And historical accounts record that Paul was martyred in 64 AD. So neither of these are recorded in scripture, once again. So with that in mind, and if these dates are correct, then John could be stepping up to continue the type of letters that were written by Paul to combat false teaching. We just spent quite a bit of time in the book of Colossians where Paul is uh, combating false teaching. And just as Paul repudiated the false teaching that was in, uh, in the church at Colossae, John is doing the same thing in this open letter to the churches in Asia. <clears throat> Ryrie and other commentators identify Gnosticism as the principal false teaching being addressed in this, in this particular letter, and that was the teaching that was plaguing the church and churches at this time. One of the tenets of Gnosticism is that deity cannot be united with anything material, such as a body. Hmm, I wonder who they're referring to other than Jesus Christ. And, uh, and then again, I wonder who the author of that teaching would be. I mean, Satan is striking at that, at that tenet of Jesus being fully God and fully man, as Ray shared with the children this morning. And... Uh, Satan sometimes is subtle with things. <clears throat> and so there's a lot of things in Gnosticism that are appealing to the flesh, the idea that you can live however you want because the body, the body, the flesh is evil, so go ahead and do whatever you want. Live life the way you want. Do what feels right. <clears throat> that's the, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that's what, that's what Gnosticism teaches us. And it's wrong because it leads us in the wrong direction. But notice that... Uh, we're going to go to 1 John now, and we're going to look at uh, the first two verses in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. But when we get there, notice that John is so passionate about this issue that he skips any sort of greeting. And I couldn't help but think, where's the love here? I mean, he's the, he's the apostle of love, but no, he's getting right after the teaching. He's going to launch directly into the teaching. He's so concerned about this. <clears throat> so, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, and what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was revealed, and we have seen and testify and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was revealed to us. So let's look into that first phrase, what was from the beginning. Let's look at the Greek source for that word beginning. And the Greek word is arche, and it means ruler or beginning. Uh, the fuller definition, there's actually three parts to it, would be to rule either as a king or a magistrate. The second part of the definition is it could be plural, such as in the sense of rulers or magistrates. And the third definition is the beginning. So it's interesting, let's stop there for a minute. Look at the fact that it's uh, referring to plural, the plural version of rulers. I mean, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> so they were all in the beginning, weren't they? At the at creation. So Strong's tells us that the word arche occurs 56 times in the Bible. And they further illustrate that uh, it means from the beginning in a temporal sense or based in time but it's more specifically, it's the initial or starting point. 
And uh, more figuratively, it's that which comes first and therefore is chief or foremost. It has the priority because it's ahead of the rest. It's preeminent. And so it's important what John, what John is saying here about that. It isn't just a word that takes us back in time, but there's a grounding, grounding in that. Some other relevant places where we see the word RK used, in addition to 1 John, is the verse that, uh, one of the verses that Ray used this morning, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Colossians 1.18, he is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So as we consider these, these verses and the, the word arche being used in these, notice the similar beginnings to John 1 and 1 John. Let me read those again. What was from the beginning, what was from the beginning, what we have heard? That's 1 John 1. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And you go on, and the words aren't exactly the same, but certainly the intent is, to me, it seems to weaken the debate about who authored the Gospel of John. But again, that's not, that's not important. But let's also look at that Paul's teaching in Colossians 1.18 attacks another tenet of Gnosticism, that there's no resur- Gnostics believe there's no resurrection of the flesh. <clears throat> Excuse me. But we see Paul says he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So Paul is, again, he's squarely taking on this false teaching of Gnosticism. So in closing, we see John open this letter by combining the deity of Christ with his eyewitness testimony. He describes this wasn't a uh, historical account. What we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So John was not only an eyewitness, he was a hands-on witness. This is an all-out blitz on his part against the falsehoods of Gnosticism. And this will be developed more fully as we go into the study of 1 John. So as we close today's uh, teaching, the preparation for today's teaching did not go in the direction I thought it would. I was talking with Ray about this before service. It's not once, but twice I was redirected and ended up focusing on the important concept of harmony in God's word. And as I thought about how to abbreviate this rabbit trail that I was on and spend more time in First John, I was reminded of the importance of the journey, which is harmony that we looked at in the Gospels as we travel to a destination, which is First John. Lord, we thank you for this time we've had in your word and uh, this time of worshiping you, Lord. And I pray if there's anything that was an error or out of place that you would just strike that uh, from our minds and we would just leave with the essence of the teaching that you want us to have. In Jesus' name, amen.